2023 is a special year. It is the 40th anniversary of the publication of the first edition of Mason and McCall Smith's Law and Medical Ethics. It's time to celebrate. Hello, my name is Anne-Marie Farrell and I am Chair of Medical Jurisprudence at Edinburgh Law School. I am also Director of the Mason Institute. On this very special episode of the Mason Institute podcast series, we celebrate the seminal textbook born and nurtured here at Edinburgh Law School over 40 years ago. At that time, Professor Ken Mason and Dr. Alexander McCall-Smith developed the idea for a textbook that would combine their disciplines in medicine and law and offer guidance where none had been before. Mason and McCall-Smith's Law and Medical Ethics textbook broke ground and continues to do so today. Now in its 12th edition, we wanted to take a look back at how far it's come and understand what the future may hold for the textbook and for medical law and ethics more generally. On this episode, you'll hear from contributors past and present to the textbook, as well as its current editors, including myself, Anne-Marie Farrell, as well as Dr. Edward Dove. Here's Professor Graham Laurie, former Chair of Medical Jurisprudence at Edinburgh Law School, and someone who had the privilege of working directly with Ken Mason and Alexander McCall-Smith on the textbook. Mason and McCall-Smith textbook was first published in 1983, 40 years ago. And it appeared at a time when not only was there no textbook, but there was no field of this area of law, medical law. The partnership between Ken Mason and Sandy McCall-Smith came about because those two colleagues were working together, one from medicine and one from law, already teaching in an area which didn't really exist, trying to understand critical sort of ethical decisions at the coalface of, of medical practice. And they realized there was a really strong unmet need to pull together some of the discussions around these ethical issues and what the law might be or what the law might say uh, with respect to, to, to medicine and how to regulate uh, the medical profession. So they decided in the early 80s to write a textbook based on their teaching. And that was how the, the textbook was born. Drawing on the comments of the, the original authors of the text, they argued there was an urgent need for it because things were changing. Doctors traditionally, as a peer group, made the decisions about how they treated patients, how they operated in the health system. But increasingly, law was playing a role. And how do you combine their ethical obligations with the law? So it was seen in the 1980s as there was an increasing need to explore that relationship and for doctors and other healthcare professionals to understand their place and role in it. And since that time, both in the legal academy, in Edinburgh in particular, which has a long, rich history in medicine and particularly medical ethics, it was to understand this burgeoning relationship between law, ethics, health and medicine. And this textbook has grappled with it for 40 years and will continue to do so in what is now a very interesting but very complex area of law. In the late 1970s, early 80s, there started to be a creeping realisation that existing cognate areas of law, criminal law, family law, private law, public law, weren't sufficient on their own to try to capture all the emerging issues coming to the fore in medicine. So that started with Professor Sir Ian Kennedy's lectures, the Reith lectures, 
and so on and so forth. And I think uh, Ken Mason and Alexander McCall Smith recognized there needed to be a publication out there for students or practitioners in the UK that brought together all of these existing areas of law into something called medical law and ethics. So it really is a pioneering textbook in that, in that sense working alongside other pioneering scholars in the area, Margaret Brazier, uh, Sheila McLean, so on and so forth. That was Dr. Edward Dove speaking. You will hear from again later in this podcast. Ken Mason and Sandy McCall-Smith were both larger-than-life characters in very, very different ways. Ken Mason always said that he came to Edinburgh Law School as his third career. And he'd already been a forensic pathologist in the Air Force. He then worked as a professor of forensic medicine in the University of Edinburgh. And after he retired, he started teaching in the law school. So he had a wealth of experience to draw on. And Sandy and Ken, when they came together in a classroom, it was theatre. It was theatre, the way that they interacted, they always taught together. They really inspired the students around this, this very controversial area where the law often wasn't developed or didn't exist. And they brought the arguments to the students and showed the students that this is a living field that medicine can contribute to, law can contribute to, ethics is essential. And their interaction really helped to make the classroom a wonderful experience and also the textbook of what it was. That was Professor Graham Laurie sharing his memories of Ken and Sandy teaching and writing together. The 12th edition of Mason and McCall Smith's Law and Medical Ethics was published in July 2023. Nowadays, there is a whole team of Edinburgh colleagues covering new topics in the book, such as bioethics and other topics which are well established in the area, such as reproduction and end of life, as well as consent. We sat down with the authors to hear about their particular contribution to this edition. First up are the authors of the two new bioethics chapters, Dr. Agamoni Ganguly-Mitra, who is Senior Lecturer in Bioethics and Global Health Ethics, and Dr. Emily Poston, who is a Chancellor's Fellow in Bioethics at the University of Edinburgh. Ago and I worked together to write two brand new chapters for this edition of the book. They are both chapters about bioethics. The first one looks at some of the general broad tools and the second one delves a bit further into different lenses that students can bring to thinking about the topic. Ago and I have been teaching together for I think seven years and a lot of what we brought to these chapters is a kind of culmination of where we are in thinking about what it means to study bioethics with law and medical ethics students, how the discipline of bioethics has evolved over recent years, and the key skills that the students need to be able to reason and defend and make arguments when they're presented with ethical questions in fields of health and medicine. From my perspective, I'd say we do a lot of research-led teaching, so we bring a lot of our thinking around our research to our teaching, to the classroom. And so from my perspective, there was a lot of bringing in questions of justice, question of global justice, gender justice, and now also racial justice to questions of bioethics and questions of ethics in health and medicine in general. The key approach we're taking in these two chapters is this idea that health and medicine and the people who practice health and medicine and the people who access health and medicine all live embodied lives and live in a social context that uh, brings about specific kinds of ethical and moral questions. 
And so this is how we situate those two chapters, reminding the readers and the students that bioethics health is happening in a society with specific histories and specific inequalities and specific kinds of processes and structure. So in the first chapter, we focus on specific kinds of tools that we use in bioethics, good reasoning versus fallacies, for example, importance of arguments, key issues related to thinking about the different disciplines within bioethics, thinking about public health ethics, thinking about research ethics, medical ethics, and how those very specific disciplines are related to each other, but also give rise to specific questions. And in the second chapter, I think we dive a little bit deeper into some of the key concepts and frameworks and critical frameworks that have been used traditionally in bioethics, but also that are arising in bioethics going forward. I think what these chapters were an opportunity for us to bring to the textbook was a fresh way that we had developed thinking about how to introduce people to bioethics, not as had traditionally been done by coming through quite heavy philosophical theory that often obscures the ethical issues they want to be thinking about, and instead give them, exactly as Ago said, tools of reasoning that think about who matters when we make moral judgments. Uh, what matters, what's valuable in life, what people's interests are, what people's particular needs are as human beings, and also bringing in threads of a more contemporary way of looking at bioethics that looks through lenses of, for example, feminisms and lenses that bring a more relational approach rather than a quite a prominent individualistic approach that has been common in bioethics until recently. Yeah, so perhaps just to give an example along the, the lines that you just talking about, Emily, thinking about autonomy, which is a very key concept in medical law and ethics, we used to treat autonomy as if the individual was quite atomistic, so almost isolated from their, their relations, their relationship to other people, to society and so on. And we've moved away a lot from that. So we give a lot more attention to the relationality, as you say, Emily, of decision-making, of what we might think is autonomy. And similarly, we used to think about issues of justice and health as issues of mostly as distribution. So how do we distribute goods that are related to health? But again, we're seeing a transformation in that area, thinking a little bit more about how people live in an unequal world and how they relate to each other as a result of that and what might be our sort of moral duties that arise from those specific kinds of inequalities. And those are not just inequalities of who has access to what and who gets to decide, but also things like racial discrimination, gender discrimination, discrimination related to disability and so on. But there are some very good examples from the pandemic where when you were thinking about the distribution of ventilators, for example, traditionally would have taken quite a consequentialist or utilitarian perspective. How do we give rise to the most good given the scarce resources that we have, for example, ventilators? But of course, if we only take that perspective, we do not take into account that there are differences in how people can access healthcare in the first place, whether you speak the language, whether there's enough time for you to be able to talk about your symptoms so that the doctor or the physicians understand that you have COVID or whether it's something else, for example. So there are all sorts of layers of inequalities that appear that wouldn't have been caught by 
our sort of historical ways of thinking about ethics and bioethics and the right thing to do. Absolutely. Yeah, and my, from my research perspective, bringing the things I think about to the textbook are the wider suite of interests and needs that people have in contemporary times dealing with health technologies, with the proliferation of health data, and the way that the big philosophical theories maybe don't equip us with the language to think about those more subtle and granular ways about thinking what people need from healthcare and from their engagement with, for example, health technologies. It's been a real pleasure to be involved in this textbook. Really excited that we've brought, I think it was maybe three paragraphs on ethics in previous editions, and now we have two full chapters. And just from a personal perspective, I remember being given, I think it was edition eight, by my partner when I first came to study medical law and ethics to um, get me ready for my studies. So to now be contributing to edition 12 is, is really great. It's very exciting. I remember again coming into sort of research at the university and also to teach and having those conversations with colleagues as to how important bioethics was, but also how important it was to think about bioethics in new ways. And there was a lot of openness within the team, which made this possible, of course, but also uh, seeing those chapters is almost a feeling that this has now been consolidated. It's real, it's tangible. Bioethics is, you know, here to stay yeah. within medical ethics and law and, um, Dr. Annie Sorby is a senior lecturer in medical law and ethics at the University of Edinburgh. She is the author of the chapter on the regulation of health and social care professionals. My background is as a legal practitioner in uh, the regulation of health and social care professionals. So I come with that expertise from the coalface about how things work in practice. But I also come as an academic to this area. For example, I've worked on a number of funded projects around matters such as the role of witnesses in fitness to practice proceedings, and also considering regimes for self-governance of healthcare professionals in other jurisdictions as well. My contribution focuses on the regulation of health and social care professionals. So it makes visible what's a really important area in medical law. It's been great to be involved in the textbook, partly because it provides a really valuable output for students and other people who are interested in this area of law and ethics, but also to work as a subject area uh, to bring together a really comprehensive text in medical law and ethics. There are a number of key themes I'd highlight. So first of all, I think this chapter provides a really holistic overview of the regulation of health and social care professionals. And that's important because this is an area which has been quite fragmented. For example, there are different legislative regimes for each of the regulators. It focuses in on fitness to practice, which is a second theme, and provides readers with the skills they need to get to grips with the differing regimes between the health and social care regulators. Thirdly, it focuses in on the professional duty of candor, which is a really important area and has come up in a number of high-profile inquiries. And finally, the chapter looks at regulatory reform. And this is really important when we're thinking about the future direction of health and social care professional regulation. Contributing to two chapters in the latest edition of the textbook is PhD candidate and research associate Ruby Reed Berendt. 
I was a contributor on two chapters for the textbook. Um, the first was a chapter on consent, which was an update that I undertook with Dr. Edward Duff and myself. I also rewrote the mental health law chapter uh, for this edition. My main research is in the field of mental capacity and mental health law specifically. That's what my PhD focuses on. My PhD is an intersectional critique of mental capacity law in England and Wales. And that was the main reason that I contributed to this chapter. I also teach on our master's course on a module on mental health law and um, on the fundamentals of law and medical ethics for the online masters. So I do a lot of teaching in the area of both consent and particularly in mental health law because that's my expertise. I think as a PhD student, it's been a wonderful opportunity to be able to contribute to a textbook like this that has such a rich history, both within Edinburgh as an institution, but also the subject area more largely. I was a master's student here and I used that textbook as a master's student. So it's a, that's a nice full circle moment for me to now be on the other side and, and have the opportunity to contribute to it and to shape the chapter of mental health so completely. It's, it's a very different uh, chapter to the one that we had in the last edition because of this UK-wide focus and I think it's been a nice opportunity to be a bit more experimental in how we think about this area. The main di distinction in this edition is we were trying to capture a pan-UK, a UK-wide approach to mental health law specifically. So one of the key aims of the chapter was to make sure that the focus wasn't just on the law of England and Wales, but that we were also providing coverage of mental health law in Scotland and mental health law in Northern Ireland to reflect changes to the legal framework that were taking place there. So one of the things that we changed considerably for this edition was we broke it down more by themes within the legislation to look at and compare and allow our students to be able to compare the key differences between how uh, the legislation was set up um, as between England, Wales and Scotland and the very different approach to fusion legislation that's now being taken or will be implemented in Northern Ireland. So that was our first key aim. So we essentially broke it down to try and capture the two key areas of mental health law first your mental health legislation that governs sectioning and treatment in hospital for people who have acute mental health problems, but also mental capacity, so issues around capacity. So the textbook was firstly split to that. And the final section that we tried to cover was the human rights discourse, which is particularly active in the mental health context. And one of the things we wanted to capture was the shifting paradigms around human rights away from the more traditional approach from European Convention of Human Rights into UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which is now becoming important in the mental health space when we think about programs for law reform. The consent chapter covers, I suppose, what is the legal purpose of consent? Why do we ask patients for consent? And what would happen in absence of consent? So those are really the key things that that chapter focuses on. First, what's the legal function of consent? And second, in what circumstances can treatment go ahead in the absence of consent? The other main focus of the chapter was around information disclosure. So what kind of information needs to be disclosed to patients to ensure a fully informed consent and the very live and ongoing legal debates around that. But mental health laws, I suppose mental capacity law as well, is quite a unique area of medical law and ethics because it's one of the few areas where you are allowed to treat individuals in absence of their explicit consent. So whereas consent is very much foundational to 
a lot of what we teach in terms of both the law and in terms of the ethical principles that underpin the law that we deal with, mental health is different because individuals can actively be treated not only in absence of their consent, but in fact in the face of their active objection to the treatment that's being given. So it's important when we're thinking about the issues in this law to talk about why we allow those situations, why legally and why ethically those things are justified, but also the implications for people who are caught in this quite distinct legal framework. Dr Murray Earle has worked on many editions of Mason and McCall Smith's Law and Medical Ethics, going back to the 1990s. His chapters cover end-of-life issues. I've been involved in the last four editions at some level. That level of involvement, there was a certain element of well, I suppose pride to some to some extent. I have courses in start and end of life in the online master's degree, and in the on-campus master's degree, I have an end of life ethics and law teaching element, and it's those elements which are brought to bear in the textbook, and vice versa. The textbook is then brought to, into the teaching itself. It's about the end of life. It's about what happens at the end of life from a medical point of view, from an ethical point of view, and indeed from a legal point of view. That could be because somebody is in a permanent vegetative state and the question arises as to whether or not to turn off life support systems. It could be because somebody has want, asked to please have that done, an advanced decision, or it could be because somebody wishes to, for the doctor to be involved in this process, currently not lawful in the UK, but lawful elsewhere. I asked Murray to tell us about the key themes covered in this chapter. Many rights. What do we have the right to do and to, what rights are being impeded by the current level of the law in the UK? So, for example, we all have the rights to refuse medical treatment, even though it might lead to our death. We are presumed to have that capacity. And yet, we do not have the right to ask anybody to help us do so. And this is an area of reform that I feel the UK has yet to bring to the law. My final question for Murray was why it was important for this chapter to be included in the textbook. Because death comes to us all. It's a a level of recognition, a level of empathy that students can feel and do feel because we can all imagine ourselves in that position. This applies to most parts of the discipline of medical law. Each of us have had some level of medical treatment, medical involvement, involvement in the healthcare system, where we can imagine ourselves in it. It's important, therefore, to also look at the regulatory environment that applies to that and applies to all of us. And the final application is indeed the final part of all of our lives. Dr. Katie McMillan is a lecturer in medical law and ethics at Edinburgh Law School. Her contributions to the textbook were in the area of contraception and termination of pregnancy, reproduction and assisted reproduction. I contributed two chapters to the textbook, one being on contraception and termination of pregnancy, in which we go through things like the concept of personhood and when personalities achieve, legal personalities achieve their stages of human life, due to different forms of contraception and when they can sometimes be attributed with folk lacking capacity, through to termination of pregnancy and recent updates in the law that have happened in that field, so quite a few things have changed in the past few years. 
And then in assisted reproduction, I looked at adding various things, including the way in which assisted reproduction is funded and the effects that that has on distribution of access to services throughout the UK. Also through to more modern developed in assisted reproduction, um, for example, mitochondrial replacement therapy and uterus transplantation as well. Um, I was delighted to be able to bring a bit of both teaching and research expertise to the chapter. In terms of research, I brought my research from my monograph on the use of the in vitro embryo for assisted reproduction and for research purposes. And into the chapter on contraception and termination of pregnancy, I brought my more recent research on the use of contraception in the UK, specifically digital contraception, um, through this new technology called Femtech. And all of that draws together nicely with my course that I offer here at the master's level called Reproduction in the Law, which is um, currently a five-week course, um, soon to expand on exactly the issues covered in both of these chapters. I think for me it was really important to bring more of a feminist perspective to the textbook. So for me, I, I started to weave in some feminist literature that I'm particularly interested in. And also thinking a little bit more to the future and, and the rapid way in which this area, as all areas of medical law, have really changed in the past few years as well. It's an area that interrelates with so many other key aspects of medical law. For example, things like consent, medical negligence but also the meaning that we attribute to human life in general and, and when we think human life begins to matter. And like much of medical law, it's a specific area that affects so many people's personal lives so clearly in so many different ways as well. I feel very proud to have been involved, honestly, because it was a textbook, and I'm sure many other folk have said the same thing, but it was a textbook that I used during my undergraduate degree, through my master's and even during my PhD. And it was something that I found invaluable in developing my own interest in medical law. And in fact, I would say it was the main way through which my interest was initially developed. So I feel very proud to be able to contribute to it now. We return to Dr. Edward Dove to hear more about his contribution to the chapter on health research in the textbook. Dr. Dove started contributing to the textbook back in 2019 in the 11th edition. My focus is in two primary areas, health research regulation and medical confidentiality. Uh, and there's been a lot of changes in the UK in the last few years in relation to health research regulation. This is something that I've taught on in several courses in the law school, as well as my research and writing. So all of that was brought together in thinking about where the UK wants to go, particularly post-Brexit in the realm of health research regulations. So the teaching, the research, the writing was all brought to bear in thinking through what revisions were needed for this 2023 edition. There are both potentially positive and negative changes in the UK coming out of Brexit. So one might be that the UK can do things slightly differently, whether it's uh, medical devices and drugs regulatory approvals, as we saw from the COVID-19 pandemic and the, uh, I think many people would say, fast and efficient rollout of the vaccines, relations to clinical trials, data protection regulation, as far as health research goes. So themes would be changing regulatory environment uncertainty, potential boost to life sciences and innovation in the UK, but a lot still that remains unknown, which makes it a time of flux, but I think also a particularly interesting area uh, to study. Health research is one of the core components of medical law, and I 
think that a student wouldn't have a well-rounded education if they didn't understand what was going on in the health research regulatory space. I really see it as one of the fundamental areas alongside consent to treatment uh, and other sorts of areas. So uh, to me, it's, a, it's one of the fundamental chapters that needs to be reviewed and studied uh, and, and appreciated. So I think that's partly why it's an interest of mine and partly why I think students would be particularly keen to, to know this area. And as I say, it is a particularly interesting time uh, to look at health research regulation in the UK, given all the changes afoot by the UK government and the devolved administrations as well. It is a labour of love uh, and, and it is an honour to carry on a legacy that has been in existence for 40 years and there's a certain tremendous badge of honour that you have knowing that you're standing sort of on the shoulders of these giants of medical on ethics and want to carry on that legacy and tradition and you certainly feel a sense of responsibility in doing so. Writing, editing a textbook is not easy and when you feel that, that burden of responsibility it certainly adds a sense of, of commitment and rigour and so many many long nights and, and busy weekends but uh, I hope it has paid in dividends and I hope students uh, and practitioners find it of value but Labour of love indeed. Indeed, I think I speak for all the authors to the current edition of the textbook in echoing Dr Edward Dove's sentiment here. We absolutely feel the importance of contributing to this highly respected textbook. It is a privilege and an honour to do so. And there's also a sense that we are custodians, simply playing our part in preparing this textbook for the next generation who will come after us. We went on to ask the authors how they perceived the impact of the textbook over time. You'll now hear from Graham Laurie to be followed by Ruby Reed Berendt and then Edward Dove. I think Law and Medical Ethics as a textbook is the leader because it's always been true to its audience. As anybody who, who, who knows where the book came from, the principal authors were a doctor and a lawyer talking to each other. That's what is needed for this area to work. And I think that conversational style has always been captured in various editions of the book. And Ken Mason, as the, as the doctor, was always very keen to make sure that the way we wrote and talked about the law was accessible to people who are not lawyers. As we can see through successive editions of this, of this book, often the law either doesn't have anything to say or what it has to say is very controversial. So we need multiple voices coming in to share experiences and, and to, to, to explore together what we ought to be doing. The law is only one part of that picture. And I think you can see that evolution from the early days of the textbook right up to the, the most recent edition where we're bringing in feminist perspectives and colleagues who are, who are actually expert in bioethics who are bringing those critical voices in as well. The textbook is a leader because it's always been true to the audience and because I think it's always been live to the fact that this is a very human subject requiring human conversations. It's part of the Edinburgh brand. It's part of the Mason and McCall Smith brand and it's very much central to what we do. I wanted my chapter to be a teaching tool, to be something that we could use in the subjects that we want to cover in our courses. And I may very much geared it towards making sure that it covered the content that we would want to cover. And I hope that it will be useful to generations of students to come and have that lasting impact. It's part of the legacy of Ken Mason as our former director of Mason and McCall Smith. And I think long may it continue to be so. 
as you'd say in law rest ipsa loquitur, the facts speak for themselves. The fact that OUP is committed to this textbook for 12 editions speaks to not only the strength of the legal analysis and the authors and editors behind that, starting with Ken Mason and Alexander McCall Smith and all the editors through, but as I say, this all of UK approach, I think that really sets Mason McCall Smith's Law Medical Ethics apart from the other textbooks. It's, it's long-standing, the analysis is robust, rigorous, ethics and law-focused, socio-legal type analysis too, and very future-orientated. I don't think it just looks back. There's always an emphasis by each of the edition's editors and authors to look forward. Where is medical law and ethics going in the UK across the four nations? And dare I say, also taking a global analysis and perspective too, which I think is very Scottish. Uh, for all of those reasons, uh, it is considered the leading medical law textbook in the UK, and I think I'm very proud of that. Speaking to students who've taken the master's degree here, a number of them have said, in so many words, this is the reason I did the degree, this book. But it's quite a strong piece of evidence. We're quite pleased and proud of our master's degree and our teaching here in the law school. So I think it's had an impact on students in the UK and also internationally in terms of, like it was for me, a way of developing an interest and knowledge in the, in the field of medical law. I think it is a textbook that a lot of not only students and academics go to, but also healthcare practitioners as well. Well, I think it's longevity and the commitment of both publishers and authors and editors to robust, critical legal and ethical analysis. It's very high quality. It's, to me, it's been an inspiration since I was a student, but also a young teacher in the area for that high level critical analysis on both core and emerging issues in medical law and ethics. It's UK-wide approach, it's deep connection to the importance of ethical principled analysis in law is also a hallmark, the depth of its research and the fact that it is an Edinburgh brand in terms of Edinburgh way of teaching this particular area. We bring both our strengths and our enjoyment and our interest in the subject to both our teaching, but also to educating both the current and future generations of health and medical lawyers and ethicists in the UK. Before my thoughts on the impact of the textbook, you heard from Murray Earle and Katie McMillan too. We all know when we produce these law textbooks that no sooner have you actually published one edition than you're needing to give some thought to the next edition given the pace of legal developments. We asked the contributors to the current edition where they think the textbook will be going in the next and future editions. Graham Laurie gives his thoughts first, followed by Ruby Reed Berendt. So in this field, we have a partnership between law and, and bioethics. Bioethics itself as a discipline only really emerged in the West in the 1960s. The law took time to catch up as it always does. Um, arguably the discipline didn't really emerge until the late 70s, 1980s. But a lot of that conversation between law and ethics has been driven by Western voices. It's a global phenomenon, law and medical ethics. It's something that affects all of humanity. So I would like to see the, the textbook move more and more to a global perspective where multiple voices, particularly currently unheard voices, get a voice at the table and that are reflected in the ways in which we have these conversations that are mirrored in the textbook itself. 
It's mainly about keeping it up to date. This is a very dynamic and evolving area. There are constant programs for reform, I think it's fair to say. And that's something I think would be very keen to capture in future editions is the changes that are ongoing, the discourses that are ongoing. Um, the debates in the literature at the moment are very dominated around the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and whether there needs to be a shift in our frameworks for managing mental health. And I think hopefully that could be also a bigger focus in the future in thinking about these kinds of alternative models for treatment that are coming out of uh, those ongoing academic conversations. I think the information disclosure um, aspects of it are significant because there's been a recent case in the UK Supreme Court called McCulloch that we were not able to cover in the textbook because it came out once the textbook had been completed. So I think it would be very important in the next update to really capture the ongoing shifts around, uh, I suppose, the debates between medical paternalism versus patient autonomy that are being reignited as a result of that case. You heard Ruby speaking about her hopes for future chapters on mental health law and consent. You'll now hear from Annie Sorby on health professional regulation to be followed by Katie McMillan on reproduction. The chapter on the regulation of health and social care professionals is definitely one which will be dynamic and evolving over future editions of the textbook. So first of all, we have the current regulatory reform, which is ongoing. So that will change the face of the regula regulation in this area. So that will be developing. We're going to see the profile of the professions change. For example, certain professions are currently in the process of coming within professional regulation. And also, I think, more detailed discussion of whether other professions should be regulated. So, for example, the Lucy Letby case has refocused discussion on whether NHS managers should become a regulated profession? I think there is a lot of scope for expansion on, on some of the technologies discussed in the chapter. Towards the end of the chapter, I noted to talk about too many different kinds of new reproductive technologies would almost be legal foretelling, but there is something very interesting about applying the current legal frameworks that we have, be it on when we attribute personhood, be it to when we attribute motherhood, so on and so forth, to new technologies, for example, things like artificial wombs. And it, tell, it gives us a really interesting picture of the kinds of values um, and norms that we currently have in our law when we suddenly apply them to these new technologies. And it kind of brings into, into stark focus that perhaps those values and norms don't really reflect those that we hold in society today. One, I think you might see further regulatory diversions between the UK as a whole and the EU, whether it's clinical trials regulations. We know the UK uh, is very keen to update the existing regulations for that since we missed the cutoff point for the EU clinical trials regulation to take effect in the UK, so we still rely on the old 2001 directive. That can be a, a blessing and a curse. Uh, I think many in the UK government would see that as a blessing so that, as I say, you can have fast track approvals and other sorts of differences with how things are done in the EU. Conversely, if you're a pharmaceutical company, uh, you might prefer to negotiate or work with 27 countries rather than one. I think one thing that we will see is further diversions in terms of how things are done between us and the EU. I think even more within that, there are some components of health research where devolved administrations can take a different role. So you might even see further diversions across the four nations beyond what the UK government does. And that, again, might lead to incredible innovations happening in the life sciences, but it could also lead to problems in terms of delays if companies, startups, etc., would rather work with EU regulators rather than UK or devolved administrations. 
was Edward Dove speaking to future chapters on health research, and here he considers the text as a whole. Well, one I think will be the mainstay of Mason McCall Smith, which is a, a whole of UK analysis, which I think is really the hallmark of Mason McCall Smith and always has been since uh, the first edition in 1983, which is it's not an England only focus. There is always a Scotland perspective, which I think is really an added value, but even more prominent in this 12th edition is in all of UK. So there's a lot more analysis, I think, too, of Wales and Northern Ireland, which is terrific and I really think sets this book apart, as is the very, very robust legal and ethical analysis. I think what we'll also continue to feature is the emphasis on ethics as much as law, and that's another standout, I think, of Mason McCall Smith. There really are two fantastic chapters, chapters one and two, written by our, our bioethicist colleagues in the law school, that also bring that robust ethics analysis that I think isn't always the case in other medical law textbooks. I think another thing that will feature is just uh, really the direction of travel in the UK. And so we are keeping a very close watching brief on what's happening uh, in Westminster, as well as Holyrood, Stormont when they get back together, and also the, the Assembly in Wales. And I think, you know, all of that will be reflected in the 13th edition. So you'll have that proper all of UK uh, systems-wide analysis in, in the 13th edition. I would probably try to focus on what I feel the future should be in terms of end-of-life decision-making. That is because we often cite, we tell students sources of law, what are the sources of law? And one of them, I mean, other than case law and um, legislation, is writings of scholars. We always tell them this. And occasionally we do find that the writings of scholars are, are cited judicially. Indeed, one of pieces of my own writing has had that privilege. Textbook writing falls into that category. And I think we might be able to push a couple of boundaries if we're sensitive enough in doing so. It would be great if the bioethics content of the textbook could become even more prominent than it has. We've added two brand new chapters and I'd like to see that expand in some ways. I'd like to see the threads of our discussions of uh, structural and justice issues threaded through all the chapters in a, in a rich way. I've got a particular interest in emerging health technologies, in health data, and for example, health AI. So I think those questions will become increasingly prominent in the kinds of examples we're giving and the kinds of ethical challenges that are raised. So I think it's already quite exciting from my perspective, um, sort of the sheer amount of discussion around questions of justice, especially questions of structural injustice, questions of epistemic injustice, questions of intersectionality that already appear in those two chapters. Traditionally, again, we used to think that only moral philosophy belonged to bioethics. This is how we do bioethics. We think about applying big ideas in moral philosophy. And increasingly, we see that this is not enough, that we need to think about the bigger sort of political, global political situation, the, the biopolitics of health and well-being. And so that's already appearing in, the, in those chapters. But I think there's a lot more to do there. I think there is space and I think appetite also from both colleagues and our readers to think a lot more about what our positionality is in the world, how we think beyond jurisdiction, how issues of, say, global obligations also affect local contexts and local considerations. The direction of travel for the textbook is we do horizon scanning each edition. What are the new emerging developments that we need to incorporate as a research-led teaching textbook? So I would anticipate 
both the continuation of the high quality critical analysis that's provided, that interrelationship between law and ethics, that sort of capturing the shifting change between the doctor-patient relationship, which is at the core of what we do, but also bringing in a socio-legal contextual analysis of emerging issues I think is particularly important along with that traditional law and ethics analysis. So I anticipate we'll be looking at things for example like the role of new technologies such as artificial intelligence, for example issues such as racism in healthcare, planetary health, climate change in health. These are all emerging issues but well current issues too but equally really important issues for our students who will be the next generation and leaders in health and medicine in the UK and beyond. Before my contribution there, you heard Murray Earle followed by Emily Poston and Ago Ganguly Mitra. To the extent that it's possible, we ask for contributors to sum up what Mason and McCall Smith's Law and Medical Ethics textbook means to them. It's a very useful handbook and aid memoir. A comprehensive overview of medical law and ethics. A foundational element of my learning in this area and something I will keep coming back to as I go ahead in in academia. I'm very proud to be able to have brought my research and teaching experience to such a well thought of and leading textbook in, in the field of medical law and ethics. I think this textbook in its new iteration for me represents the core of the philosophy of our team where we've always taken the ethical aspects of health and medicine very seriously in our research, in our teaching. So yeah, it's a consolidation, it's an illustration of that. Edinburgh Law School and the courses in health, medical law and ethics that we offer has a history of teaching law and ethics hand in hand and one in which ethics has been increasingly welcomed by our colleagues and by our students. So for me, the textbook represents a consolidation and a realisation of that really embedded twin subject that is health law and ethics, both of them hand in hand. A real sense of pride and honour in having worked on this with wonderful colleagues as well. This is an Edinburgh project, an Edinburgh output. And I think that's what makes it so inspiring, remarkable and joyful, that this is, this is something that you, you co-work on with leading international experts in medical and ethics and very few people have such, such a privilege and that's just something that I really will take with me for the rest of my career. And in many ways look forward to every three to four years despite it <laughs> being a very significant undertaking every, every three to four years. Mason and McCall Smith's textbook is the UK's leading and classic textbook in the area of medical law and ethics. It has meant so much to me, both as a student and a teacher in the area. It is research-led, high-quality critical analysis. It's been extremely impactful in teaching in the area, in educating both current and future generations of students and practitioners in health and medicine. It deals with core issues in people's lives, their health, their well-being, the beginning of life, the end of life, and all things in between. So students relate to it, we relate to it, we take it very seriously at Edinburgh Law School, but also amongst our colleagues. It is an honour and a privilege, but it's also really important. Law and medical ethics for me is the essence of this discipline. This, this discipline is about human beings talking to each other from different perspectives but finding common ground.
It would be remiss of us not to share some precious audio we have of one of the original authors, the late Professor Ken Mason, in discussion with me some years back. Here we are discussing the fundamental question of why we do what we do at all. You've always seemed to be, as you mentioned before, really interested in medical law and medical ethics and the interrelationship between the two. Why do you think, or how, why is that relationship important? Why should we be looking at both? Because, uh, uh, because we say, as I say in the front of the book, every law is founded on moral principles, so to speak. Uh, and if we're talking, if, if, if we're talk, talking about about medical law, it's, what we're talking about essentially is 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 the relationship of the, of, of the legal relationship between the doctor and his patient, mm. and this can not only will not be governed necessarily by law, but but, but it will be governed by right by custom, which is which is uh, uh, really uh, effectively. Uh, a good practice or ethical practice, yeah, so, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and I mean, in fact, if you if you look uh, uh, around in medical law, there's virtually no or very, very, very little statute law uh, to, yeah. deal, to deal with deal with, deal with medicine. Yeah, yeah. Very, uh, very little. It's all it's all case law, yeah. uh, and and case law founded. Uh, on, 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 as I say, on good custom, anything else. So, so while I think medical law and medical ethics are are distinct things, mm. you can't have one without the other. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that, 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 that the law must be based on, on ethical practice, and ethical practice must be governed by the law. On behalf of the Mason Institute, we would like to extend our thanks to all Edinburgh colleagues who contributed to the current 12th edition of Mason and McCall Smith's Law and Medical Ethics, published by Oxford University Press in 2023. Specifically, lead editors and authors, Professor Amory Farrell and Dr. Edward Dove, and also to our Edinburgh colleagues who contributed individual chapters including Dr. Murray Earle, Dr. Agamoni Ganguly-Mitra, Dr. Emily Poston, Dr. Katie McMillan, Ms. Ruby Reed Berendt, and Dr. Annie Sorby. We would also like to thank Professor Graham Laurie for the foreword provided to the current edition. We would also like to thank all editors and authors who contributed to previous editions of Mason and McCall Smith's Law and Medical Ethics, including Professor Graham Laurie, Dr. Sean Harmon and Dr. Jared Porter. A very special thanks to the late Professor Ken Mason and Emeritus Professor Alexander McCall-Smith for their seminal contribution to initial publication of the textbook in 1983 and the many editions that followed. We would also like to thank the Mason Institute, Edinburgh Law School and the University of Edinburgh. Their financial and other support is gratefully acknowledged. We also thank Oxford University Press, the publisher of the current 12th edition, as well as previous editions of the textbook. This podcast was produced and edited 
by Kelly Crichton.